Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This week on The Takeout, the White House Director of Legislative Affairs, he's involved in everything, Eric Ulan. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this most amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week, 60 radio stations, CBSN, Look In Audience, and our podcast platforms, we are two things. What are those two things each and every week? Dear listeners and viewers, you know what they are. Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. Our guest this week is someone that, when he typically walks into a Washington, D.C. restaurant, people speak in hushed tones because they know how important he is. He is one of those people who can literally silence a room. And for this day and for this particular episode of The Takeout, I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, with the exception of perhaps Donald Trump, President of the United States, maybe Mike Pence, Vice President of the United States, every reporter in Washington, D.C. right now wishes they were sitting where I am and where you are indirectly. Because our guest this week is a gentleman I've known for many years named Eric Ulan. You've never heard of him, or you probably haven't heard of him, but he is the director of the Office of Legislative Affairs for President Trump, which means he has been in the center of almost every negotiated agreement between the president and House Democrats, many of which have come to fruition in the last week and a half. Central to the impeachment saga will be central to its resolution, whatever it may be, in the United States Senate, helped put together... The letter President Trump sent earlier this week to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, let us just say this, on the news, ladies and gentlemen, we are on the news with Eric Eulen. Eric, it's great to have you with us. <laughs> Thanks, Major. That's a heck of an address. I told you it was a whopper. Yeah, I was a barn burner. Yeah. It's great to see you. Let me cut to the chase right away. By the way, all the happy sounds you hear around us, folks, we're at MXDC, which is a Mexican restaurant very near the White House. And all those happy sounds are the kind of collective agitation of Washington beginning to let its hair down after a couple of very frenzied weeks. I think that's fair to say. I think that's true. Plus a little Christmas cheer. Kind of Christmas cheer. All right. Let's just deal with some of these impeachment things right off the top. Please. Is President Trump angry that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has so far delayed sending those articles of impeachment to the United States Senate? I think the president is completely baffled at the theory that Nancy Pelosi appears to have that somehow holding back impeachment articles will leverage some sort of specific behavior out of the Senate. If Pelosi is baffled, but not angry. No, there's nothing. So No, not angry. Not angry. There's just 
a real curiosity. What is the strategy here? What are the tactics? Look, the president. I know President Trump well enough to know if he thinks they're not sure of their strategy, he's not angry. He's happy. (laughs) He's been having a couple of good weeks, let me tell you that. But look, for somebody who's been falsely accused on the facts, who's been put through the victimhood of an incredibly unfair process, to then be told repeatedly that he's a threat to the republic and a danger to the world, now at the culmination of that process for the House, that the Speaker of the House now determines or decides, you know what, upon reflection, I'm not going to send those articles forward. We're just going to hang on to them and wait and see what developments are. Either this is a serious exercise or it's not. Either the man deserves a day in court or this whole thing was a specious exercise. And it's up to the Speaker to ultimately determine, and I think she will soon, that it's better to move the process forward rather than than to sit inert and unfairly keep the man's rights from being fully utilized in the Senate. For the benefit of our audience, I want to let them know that Eric Ulan worked in the United States Senate for many, many years. He is a student of procedure. He's someone who knows the institution well. Do you think there is something either legally questionable or constitutionally suspect about this particular decision? It is certainly constitutionally questionable that after an impeachment article, or in this case two impeachment articles, are adopted by the House, somehow the House has the discretionary ability to hold those to themselves and not transmit them to the Senate. The framers did not intend impeachment to be a power for one House only. It was intended to be a shared power between the House and Senate. So this upsets that balance that the framers laid out between the House and Senate and the responsibilities provided to each in order to deal with questions of impeachment. And it has been said that this is thought of as either leverage for the way the trial will be conducted or possibly leverage for a particular legislative initiative, meaning the United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. Maybe if the articles are held back, the Majority Leader Mitch McConnell might put USMCA, that's its acronym name, ahead of the current schedule, which is to consider that and vote on that after the Senate trial. It's not my understanding that impeachment has ever been used as a matter of legislative leverage. It would be, and I'm not being pejorative. I'm just no, saying that's just my understanding simple, and reading of the history. It's a simple fact. It would be extraordinary and unprecedented to hold articles of impeachment in order to force a legislative outcome, which is already foreordained. As you know today, the USMCA passed the House overwhelmingly, less than 50 votes against it. And the support in the Senate is also incredibly strong. So it's going to pass. It's going to get to the president's desk. It's going to be signed into law, and it's going to be transformative for trade relationships in the 21st century. And we'll get to that. I guarantee you we'll get to that. So the idea that somehow after running an incredibly partisan exercise on fake facts with the most sacred responsibility that's available to Congress under the Constitution, that now you're somehow going to hold those back, hold them hostage in order for a legislative outcome when a man's right to defend himself is at stake is not only unprecedented, it's not only unwise, it's completely unfair and really astonishing moment here in constitutional history. Let's get to that phrase you just used, a man's right to defend himself. How vigorously does President Trump intend to defend himself in a Senate trial? Meaning, does he want a full stable of witnesses called and a lengthy trial, which by the utterances of the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, is not where he is. 
Well, Major, as you know, from the very beginning of this, the president has not been shy about defending himself in a court of public opinion. As shy well, is uh, not a word I would apply to President <laughs> right, Trump. exactly. You know him very well. So when it comes to the process, when the speaker ultimately transmits these articles, we're discussing robustly and cooperatively with the Senate majority and the majority leader the best way to proceed. In 1999, when President Clinton's articles of impeachment were presented to the Senate, I happened to be serving on a leadership staff helping run the Senate trial for President Clinton out there on the Senate floor. And what the members ultimately decided to do was provide a period of time where the House managers would be able to make their case, the president's defense team would be able to make its case, the senators would be able to ask questions, and we can talk about how you ask questions in an impeachment trial in a moment, ask questions of each side, and then ultimately retire to debate amongst themselves how they best wanted to proceed. In 1999, they came out and decided, all right, Let's, let's see whether or not we want to stop the trial at this point. Let's dismiss these articles. There was a motion to do that from Robert C. Bird. There was a motion by Robert C. Bird to dismiss the articles. That did not pass. It failed overwhelmingly, 56 to 44, and the trial continued, and the Senate then worked its way through deciding whether or not to have witnesses, which witnesses, Whether they would be format, live and subject to right, cross-examination or, or on videotape. Right, so ultimately the decision was to videotape three specific witnesses, and then to decide whether or not that evidence should be put in the trial record. Ultimately, that happened, and that evidence, almost without any uh, amendment, was put in the record. And then the trial continued until ultimately the Senate decided to vote on the articles of impeachment and ultimately quit Bill Clinton. Correct. So that's the process that was used in 1999. That first phase, where both sides are able to make their case, senators ask questions, is something that many members have talked to us about making sure Does the president endorse that? He certainly does. He wants to make sure that his team has the full opportunity to make his case to the United States Senate and then take questions, again, from senators to further develop the record, develop his case, and then work with senators as they ultimately decide the best way to proceed on his uh, on his case. I'm going to hold you right there. That's the voice of Eric Euland, a very important person inside the Trump White House. He's Director of Legislative Affairs. I'm Major Garrett. We're at MXDC. Back for segment two of The Takeout in just a second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. And there is no good answer as to why we shouldn't have witnesses. McConnell has ranted and raved, but he hasn't had a single direct answer why there shouldn't be witnesses. I think we will get witnesses. And one more point here. I don't know what these witnesses will say. They could, you know, they're all appointees of President Trump. They could be exculpatory. 
and that so be it if they are. So but on the that truth point, should come out, and we are pushing to get the truth, not a sham trial where nothing new is learned. That is the voice of Charles Schumer, Minority Leader of the United States Senate. Our special guest this week, Eric Ulan, Director of White House Office of Legislative Affairs, central in all the negotiations about the upcoming impeachment trial of the 45th President of the United States, Donald Trump, and many other legislative items. When Charles Schumer says he has not heard a single direct answer about why there shouldn't be witnesses, how do you respond? Well, the, the simple answer, well, first I should say, I've never heard Mitch McConnell rant and rave in my life, so I found that kind of amusing that Senator Schumer would lay that out there. But in terms of the facts, when it comes to witnesses, the way this case was brought forward on a false allegation from the whistleblower, so-called whistleblower complaint, meant that from the very beginning, the framing of this allegation or set of allegations against the president was belied by the facts in the transcript. The transcript is the best witness. The two transcripts of the president speaking to the, the, the leader of Ukraine will lay out in real time contemporaneously what actually happened. And so the need for witnesses is subsumed into the reality of the facts as, they, as the president has revealed. Meaning, them. from the White House perspective, there is no need for witnesses. When it comes to the facts, everybody's had the opportunity in real time, even as this began, to see exactly what the president said, how he said it, and what he was doing at the time. So, at the end of the day, after two years of a Mueller investigation that accused him of extraordinary matters, which was belied by the report and belied by uh, the facts, now we're in the same situation where, again, the facts belie the allegation, and the facts speak very strongly for themselves. Yes or no? Does the president want witnesses in the Senate trial? The president is working closely and collaboratively yes. with Leader McConnell. But what you just said implies there are no need. There is no need for witnesses, if I hear you correctly. The world is full of many implications, Major. I'm not attempting to imply anything either way. I'm simply pointing out But when you say the transcript fact, is the best witness, that makes my viewers is. and listeners think is. you're saying no witnesses and are necessary. And the president, as we all know publicly, has explained this many, many times. The president of Ukraine has explained this more than once. Folks in Ukraine have explained repeatedly there was no pressure. And so as the set of allegations and this wild ride in the House has unfolded, do you like that poll I there? Do. you like that callback? Mr. Trump's Wild Ride yes, is an excellent exactly. book, ladies excellent, and gentlemen. Excellent book. Should be a New York Times number one bestseller. It's not, Perhaps but Perhaps we can be. bring that back. At any event, as this wild ride has unfolded in the House, over and over and over again, every set of conversations that have been public about this in relation to these allegations have disproved them. So it's not necessarily a question of witnesses because in real time people are providing testimony, their witnesses themselves, and explaining to everybody what didn't happen and what did happen in terms of our relationship with Ukraine. I'm going to stop you right there because Nicole has been waiting so ever so patiently she for certainly us. has. And I'm going to go, not that there's anything wrong with it because I'm a Caucasian from San Diego, I'm going to go full gringo here and just have the fajitas, please. Yes, thank you. And may I please have a Diet Coke and some guacamole and chips? That's all you need? Guacamole and chips? That's all I need. Guacamole right. and chips. That's very good. All right. And recreational eating. All right, Eric. Uh, I fully appreciate all that you've just said. You and I have talked many times. We've 
fenced occasionally. I'm going to fence with you a little bit All right. here. Very good. On guard. Just because it is a central question. Let me rephrase it a, a, a way that might get closer to what you're trying to get at or what the president actually believes. Does he think he needs any witnesses to clear his name in the Senate? Well, first and foremost, as I just said, the transcript is the most powerful testimony of all, as well as the words of people from Ukraine, as well as people who have testified claiming, based on the whistleblower allegation, that certain things happen when, under oath, in front of Congress, they say exactly the opposite. Every single charge that was laid out by the Democrats and by the whistleblowers been belied by the testimony of principals, whether it is Sondland, whether it is Taylor, whether it is others in the foreign policy chain, nobody has ever said the president demanded what the whistleblower alleged he said. And in fact, it's become so rococo in the House that the insistence from Adam Schiff at the beginning of this testimony, or beginning of this enterprise, that the whistleblower must come in and testify has mysteriously disappeared. He would argue if he were here, the other witnesses reinforced what the whistleblower said and therefore the whistleblower was no longer a central fact witness or necessary for this process to move forward credibly. That's what he would say. I know that because he said it several times publicly. It makes no sense to the American people or anybody falsely accused of a crime that the individual who falsely accused you of a crime suddenly is no longer necessary as the judicial process unfolds. That so is this a matter belief. where you trade witnesses? If Adam Schiff shows up, if Hunter Biden shows up, then you'll be willing to offer, let's say, Mick Mulvaney or John Bolton. Well, in terms of the Schiff show and everything we've seen over in the House today. That was not an FCC violation. By that the way. was not. There was a T at the end of that word. But Mr. McCarthy has pointed out that perhaps some people um, are incorrectly pronouncing the chairman's name. So if I did, I apologize. In any event, what we've seen in the House over the past few months has been an outrageous violation of President Trump's rights. He has said repeatedly and fully he wants to make sure that his legal team, as well as those of us working on his behalf, protect all his rights wherever the venue is that we are able to fully protect his rights. That happens to be the United States Senate, given how perverse the House process has been. And as we continue to work with Majority Leader McConnell and other United States senators, we'll discuss the best way to proceed against a framework that many people have discussed in relation to how things unfolded in 1999. And essentially what Eric's striving at is uh, the rules will be determined as they always are in matters like this, whatever 51 senators agree upon. I mean, that is essentially the truth. And Mitch McConnell has said that. That is the underlying reality. Do you have any anxiety, Eric Eulen, head of legislative affairs for the Trump White House, that any Republicans are of two or three minds on this, that you might see some of them stray on this question of witnesses? Are you trying to hold them all together so that there not be witnesses so you can go to a swift motion to dismiss after the presentation and question phase one period is over? Well, reserving on how you framed your question and not stipulating the, the, the framing as you put it, the president's focus from the beginning has been on the facts. Part of laying out the facts is to explain to not just the American public, but also his allies in Congress, the truth of the matter. He's very heartened by the reality that congressional Republicans have been so united in these past few months on the key question of whether or not something improper happened that rises to the level of an impeachable offense. 
He was gratified by the unified Republican vote against beginning the inquiry in the House. He was gratified with the unified Republican vote here at the end against both articles. He was excited to see bipartisan opposition to both the beginning and the end of this impeachment process. And as Narrow though Senate, it was. Yeah, so as, a, as we move to the Senate, he remains very confident, not only in the facts of the case and the facts of the matter, but that as he continues to ensure that his full defense but is he's also out, confident Republicans has, will walk in lockstep. With he him. has plenty of Republican support in the United States Senate. And as you've seen over the past couple of months, the conversation with Senate Republicans by him has been rich. It has been robust. It has been comprehensive. He's had the opportunity to have nearly every United States senator over on the Republican side over to the cabinet room or the Roosevelt room for lunch every Thursday. So he's had a chance to discuss not just the Ukrainian matter, but also other issues on the mind of senators. He's been very clear and direct with them, interested in their policy priorities, which hopefully we can talk about in a minute, as well as making sure at the end of the day, if they have questions, if they have thoughts, if they have inquiries that we provide answers and we provide the sort of connectivity that they're looking for and need as this impeachment process has unfolded. That's the voice of Eric Eulen, Director of Legislative Affairs at Trump White House. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment three of The Takeout in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at MXDC. Dinner is en route. Eric Eulen, Director of Legislative Affairs, Trump White House, is our very special guest. Eric, um, is the president's team for the impeachment trial set? Thanks for the question. The president has been discussing with his legal counsel, both inside the White House, as well as a variety of outside legal experts, Senate experts, constitutional law experts, the best formulation of the presentation of his case in the United States Senate. As you know, he addressed a piece of this today Mm -hmm. by explaining that the role of Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, would be quite prominent in this work going forward. Will he be lead counsel, more or less? So I think the best place, the the best way for me to answer that is for you to drop in the cut of the president right now, uh, because I want to be exactly precise uh, and follow on what the president said. But look, Pat is the White House counsel. He has been quarterbacking significant aspects of this work since the allegations first arose. And as the president said today, he will be out there in, in a lead position, but the president hasn't finalized has his not team, has not finalized, has not finalized his, his whole team. Do you imagine Pat. that it will include outside experts in the legal field? You can't rule anything out. Understood. So you have outside experts, you have inside experts, you've had a lot of suggestions from members of Congress, uh, and I'm sure that that conversation by the president will Speaking continue. of members of Congress, Mark Meadows, uh, who's been a guest on this very program here, here. and a very public defender of President Trump, announced today he was resigning or not running for re-election, not resigning, but not running for re-election for a seat in North right. Carolina. And he said his uh, service in the Trump administration is not over, meaning suggesting he's going to do something. Might he be part of this impeachment legal team? Well, again, I think the president's reviewing all his options. and whether Would that be an outlandish idea? And when the president has announcements to make, we will all learn them in real time. Should we think along those lines? I think the president's response would probably be, Eric, tell them to make sure I'm not ruling anything in and I'm not ruling anything out. Understood. Um, 
How would you say the relationship is within the White House between Mick Mulvaney and Pat Cipollone? I think it's a very solid relationship. We have a variety of significant components inside the White House delivering on the president's agenda. The chief of staff is involved daily in dealing with impeachment as well as a multiplicity of matters across both of the domestic, national security, and foreign policy spheres. So the conversation, the work between White House counsel, the chief, ledge affairs, communications, the vice president's office, it, and others is incredibly robust. Quite no rich. clashing between the chief of staff and the White House counsel. So the president wants to make sure all opinions are heard and put in front of him. When the president provides a direction or comes to a, a decision, we all go out and execute against the president's direction. But they do clash. Major, we don't clash. We merely have very robust and vigorous conversations. But again, the president asks for that. He expects that. He's disappointed if he doesn't hear that. And at the end of the day, once he tells us, this is where I want to go, we all go out and deliver on where he wants to go. Speaking of uh, where he wants to go, you were part of the team that put together the president's letter to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, true? That is true, yes. Are you proud of that letter? Am I proud of that letter? Mm -hmm. That letter comes from the President of the United States. The President dictated that letter. The President edited that letter. We spearheaded the process to make sure that that letter moved through the White House as quickly as it could. And the letter very well reflects the president's opinions and views on the question of what's going on to him. I think there's no doubt that you can take pride both in the substance of the letter as well as, in my case, my participation in helping make sure that that letter reflected the president's words and ultimately was taken to the Hill. For the benefit of my audience, when you say the president dictated the letter, help them understand what that means. Literally dictated. How does that work? So the president, either, as any president often does, can call staff into his office. The president can share material drafts. The president can have multiple conversations with individuals and Our responsibility is to make sure that we are transcribing the words of the president and reflecting and presenting those to him as he goes through various edits. It's not dissimilar to how many presidents have operated in the past where they have a particular policy direction or set of priorities that they'd like to lay out and that they work directly to get their words down so when you and say get them dictated, right all the way through this. You were in the Oval Office and he's talking. Absolutely. This way for this letter. Mm-hmm. And you're taking yes. notes. Definitely. Yes. And what would you say the percentage of his involvement in that letter was as far as dictating the sentiments and the precise, some people have described it as scathing language? I, I would say that his involvement was total. This was You did not idea. add scathing language that was not there by the president. <laughs> I, I often have a reputation, or I have a reputation in the White House of often being rather pacific in how I respond to things. So I have a lot of scathing thoughts, but I try to hold them to myself unless I'm invited to, to share them. In any event, the president's words, this letter reflects the president's words, his thoughts, his beliefs. And in some cases, his feelings about the unfairness of the process that he is being put through and his family is being put through, courtesy of what's happened over in the House of Representatives. On the night he was impeached, President Trump was in Battle Creek, Michigan. And, and this is him reading or extrapolating from the letter. 
You are the ones interfering in America's elections. You are the ones subverting America's democracy. We did nothing wrong, nothing whatsoever. This was just an excuse. You are the ones obstructing justice. You are the ones bringing pain and suffering to our republic for your own selfish, personal, political, and partisan gain. They're bringing pain. How much do you think that letter will change or alter the dynamic between President Trump and Nancy Pelosi? Some, a lot, or not at all? I don't know. That's really up to Speaker Pelosi, not us. The president doesn't have anything to do with that, with the letter? I mean, this is not a forgettable letter. The president, it's a very intense letter. Absolutely, because the president wants to record for history his thoughts, his opinions, his feelings about this very unfair process that he's been put through and how it relates to his record. When the, when the speaker began her second tenure at the top of the House, the president was very warm and very interested in forging a cooperative relationship with her. At every turn, it's been incredibly difficult for him to find partnership, common ground, and ways to move on ahead. So when the House then turns to an impeachment process that is fatally flawed and completely impeached itself by the facts, the president has, as any human being would have, a naturally frustrated reaction. The president is not shy about speaking directly his mind. He's not very shy about sharing his feelings. He wears his heart on his sleeve. You know that. I know that. Anybody who works closely with him for a little bit or a long period of time and knows that and appreciates that. And your comfort level with that. that really doesn't matter, does it? I find it incredibly refreshing you to do. work for a politician who is able to speak directly his opinions, his beliefs, who solicits input, who is willing to have propositions tested seriously and discuss, repeat back and forth, learn from each other, and ultimately see if there's common ground to be found to move forward. Do you find something better or more refreshing about this approach than for some of the people you used to work for? Bill Frist or Mike Enzi or Don Nichols? Is is there something different that you see that you maybe didn't think you would discover in the Trump model? Well, it's not a question of comparing or contrasting. There are a variety of unique styles, as you well know, in politics, each of which can be incredibly successful. In this instance, we are working for and working on behalf of a model that has been incredibly successful. After all, he is president of the United States. Now, in terms of how he goes about ensuring that to the most extent possible there's any place you can go to find partners to work with on any significant issue he is going to do that and he's going to make sure we do it too one of the most underappreciated facts about the president is how quickly and how broadly he's developed relationships throughout the house and senate on a bipartisan basis may i add that don't see the light of day that are not prominent or dominant in terms of media coverage, but nevertheless serve him and his agenda very well. That's the I'm the beneficiary I'm stop you right of there, Eric, because we got to go to break. I'll let you finish that thought on the other side. I'm Major Garrett. We're with Eric Eulen, head of direct, Director of Legislative Affairs at Trump White House. Back for segment four in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout 
with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at MXDC. I promised you in our conversation with Eric Euland, Director of White House Legislative Affairs, we get to other matters, and we're going to get to them now. And probably some of that will bleed over to the takeout outtake especial. So make sure you listen to that as well, podcast listeners. So USMCA was passed by the House today. We're recording this on Thursday. The show will pop tomorrow. I want to read you two quotes about the agreement, how it was negotiated and amended in conversations with House Democrats. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, often comments up in our conversation tonight. Not as good as I had hoped, direct quote. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, we ate their lunch. And as I pointed out in relation to the last quote, she ate our lunch in our diner. Now, the conversations over many months on USMCA this revolutionary trade deal for the 21st century involved a simple reality that we all had to face at the beginning of 2019. Democrats had taken over the House, Republicans retained the Senate. We have this transformative, transformational trade deal available for action in Canada, in the United States, and Mexico. But the Democrats in the House needed to both closely review it and then place their policy stamp in it as part of the conversations in order to make sure in all three capitals it would be able to be adopted and, and ultimately ratified. So Ambassador Lighthizer created a strong working relationship with the speaker and ultimately a working team while juggling two other capitals uh, at the same time and working through a variety of months in good faith conversations with House Democrats as well as working hard as best he could to keep the rest of Congress updated. It has been said the president and the speaker did never never talked about this directly. Is that true? I think that's correct, as far as did I that understand help? the matter. <laughs> <laughs> Major, you're such a cynic. No. Did it help that they didn't talk to each other? Did I, it, listen. It, it, my point being that, because you said this as we were going to break, the president has created these relationships that don't get a lot of attention, and I believe that's true, because I know the president calls members of Congress all the time. Quite unexpectedly, in ways Indeed. that his predecessor, President Obama, right. never did. You know That's that, correct. and I know that. Yes. Or there was so a my, very so my, so my, my, my question is: is institutional? It's political. Individual. It's also practical. Did it help that the principals were not involved in other people who had the trust of their leadership and the mandate? Did it themselves? On this, and issue, then reported back up. On this issue, the president made a calculated decision to put the most expert individual on the job to negotiate directly with the speaker and the most and trusted one. Team. Speaker Pelosi called Robert Lighthizer a straight Correct. shooter and a yes. honest broker. Absolutely. So it's a very powerful and very significant relationship here. But the president was fully apprised, fully informed, fully interacted and signed with off Bob on all the concessions. And many many other members as we went through this. And as you know, at the end this came together incredibly rapidly. So the challenge while this is developing in real time when you have Bob down in Mexico City Bob to inform right? members. Rep. Right. So while he's on the plane to and then in Mexico City, getting on the phone and at least brief, quickly briefing Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate, something that we made sure would actually happen. So even though members at the end, remember, we just came out of Thanksgiving, ready to, to try to move on ahead. So then when this occurs very quickly, making sure that Bob's able to both explain what's going on at very high level, and then as soon as he gets back into town, 
being able to get up on the Hill and explain more deeply with Democrats, with Republicans, with House, with Senate, with leadership, something we try to make sure, and I think successfully executed. Now, people have their opinions, rightly founded, I'm not here to quarrel with that, about whether or not they like certain adjustments to the trade deal, but the reality is when you're working with members of the other party and trying to find common ground, you're going to make adjustments that may not always have been as easy um, to and contemplate. And without those concessions, when you wouldn't you still have an example when you uh, still Richard Trump, the, the head of the, the AFL-CIO, endorsing it, which the president even himself praised. Well, there are a variety of things that the head of the AFL-CIO thought that were dismissed out of hand. Right, that were not, he not matters that we wanted to entertain, nor did we consider. So, for example, a very significant piece of pension legislation, pension bailout legislation, some would say, uh, was a significant demand of Mr. Trumpka and others throughout these conversations. Richard we examined Trump, it. The we took it. Correct. We took a look at it. We went through a very thoughtful process. The president was part of these conversations. So ultimately decided that for what were priorities inside the USMCA and a way to forge a path forward, ultimately to find common ground, the idea of incorporating that into the arrangement was not something that was going to find favor Understood. with the Trump administration. I'm fascinated endlessly, Eric, as you well know, because we've known each other for many years, about how things get done in the underlying structures. And many in my audience might ask themselves, wait a minute, I'll say, let me get this straight. You're negotiating a trade deal while the president's being impeached. You're negotiating the continuation of government spending. Lots of give and take. Trust has to be established. You're also negotiating a National Defense Authorization Act, which has not only defense implications, but things like federal family paid leave. All of which is occurring while this impeachment drama is playing out. Explain to my audience how that happens, how you can have the intensity, the sort of acetylene torch heat of impeachment and all these other give and take trusting negotiations going on at precisely the same time. It's certainly a unique moment in history and I'm sure many years from now folks will investigate it and try to come to conclusions about how that Some of us might even write a book about it. Uh, Maybe one or two of us over, over the years in the audience. But listen, split screen life is a way of life in Washington, D.C. Sometimes the stakes are much more significant than others, other times, but nevertheless, many things are going on at the same time. When the president asked me to take this role on, on his behalf, one of the things he charged me with was being very thoughtful about attempting to pull off as many of his priorities as we could under his leadership in the summer and fall of 2019. And so we set about to do that. So after analyzing a a variety of his priorities and understanding the best way forward in Congress and some of their priorities, he ultimately agreed that during the course of 2019, we ought to be able to, with hard work, pull off creating a space force. We ought to, with creativity and a lot of hard work, be able to set a fiscal year 2020 and fiscal year 2021 fiscal framework, which we're able to do. He thought it was very important that with a lot of hard work, we could have the ability to land significant health policy reforms and so and and many other priorities besides. So after he gave us that direction, we set out along those lines to accomplish that. We had opportunities available to us, Democrats newly in charge in the House, Republicans still in charge with an enhanced majority in the Senate 
Many of the newly elected Democrats in the House came from districts Trump that districts, President Trump had won. Correct, 31 districts. So a lot of still significant support in those districts for the president that these newly elected members had to pay attention to. That's the voice of Eric Eulen, our special guest this week, Director of White House Legislative Affairs. Eric, I really could not have had you on this show on a better week than this. I appreciate this. We'll have the Takeout Outtake Especial on the other side of this. Stay tuned for that. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Eric Susanen and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist— Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.